0: The premise of today's sermon is that God's will, one size does not fit all. Now, here at BCM we are very much united in a number of things. We don't necessarily agree on everything. The point of Romans seven, who it's talking about what's going on in Genesis six, et cetera. But there are a few things that knit the BCM faculty together. And one of those is just a strong conviction that God does have a personal will for each one of you, that God cares about the trajectory of your life and what you are going to do and so forth. And that aspect of theology, I imbibed that from my parents. Uh, I very strongly align closely with my parents' perspective. In fact, their perspective on that theologically is one of the reasons I'm here today, I believe. Yet that is not always the case within broader evangelicalism and even fundamentalism. Not everybody believes that. In fact, in the 1980s, theologian Gary Friesen wrote a book called Decision-Making and the Will of God that became extremely influential within evangelical and fundamentalist Christianity. In this book, he argued that instead of seeking for a personal, specific will of God, Rather, we should learn how to make good decisions based on wisdom and study of God's word, as if those two are mutually exclusive. This would, in the words of Hayden Robinson, writing the foreword, free Christians from two crippling extremes, unwarranted delay and vacillation on the one hand, and impulsively emotionally loaded judgments on the other. Now, to be fair, both of those can be problems within Christian living. This sort of thinking has come to dominate evangelical Christianity. Kevin DeYoung, who has written some things worth reading, but Kevin DeYoung writes in his book, Just Do Something, he argues against a magic eight ball notion of God. And he even goes so far as to suggest that maybe we have difficulty discovering God's wonderful plan for our lives because, if the truth be told, he didn't really intend to tell us what it is. Now, such approaches throw the baby out with the bathwater. They are reacting, however, to a legitimate concern. Even though the arguments are flawed, those books are flawed, they are reacting to a legitimate concern. One recent book writes, William Klein and Daniel Steiner, because of the way that calling language has dominated Christian discourse, people are encouraged to expect God to work in a particular way in their lives, but when they do not experience God in these specific ways, they are easily left confused, discouraged, and frustrated. And that may be the case with some of you, that is what we are going to talk about today. The frustration that comes about sometimes in seeking God's will and becoming overly stressed about it. Now, the solution is not to give up the pursuit of God's will, God's specific will for your individual personal life. The solution is not to give up that pursuit and just accept some kind of generic one-size-fits-all mentality, but neither is the solution to compare your experiences to those of others and assume that just as God worked with them, so also he must work with me in showing me his vocational will. The solution, rather, is to embrace the fact that God is a heavenly father that cares about you personally. And just as a good human father will interact with each of his children individually in unique ways, but still with the concern to guide and direct them, so also your heavenly father does the same thing. You are special in his eyes, but you are not special in a generic, everybody's the same sort of a way. You are an individual. You are special in God's eyes as a unique individual. He created you a specific way with certain skill sets, with certain talents, with certain tendencies, with certain hobbies even. And he will relate with you in a unique, special, individual way. When it comes to God's will, one size does not fit all. Turn to Proverbs 3, 5 through 8 as our starting point. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. This is something of a unique sermon to me. I had the rare experience. This happens with me a lot less than it does with evangelists and pastors. I, I had the rare experience of, in my, and from as best as I can determine God's will, of God changing my mind on what I was to preach. Now, with an evangelist, evangelists like Dr. Jim and Mr. Balser and others like to get up in the pulpit and and say how this happened like last night, that they had a sermon all prepared and this happened, suddenly God changed their mind last night and they had to scramble. Now, the Lord knows, because the Lord is gracious and works with us uniquely as individuals, the Lord knows that if he pulled that stunt on me, so to speak, I would be too panicked to preach anything. (laughs) So the Lord gave me about two weeks heads up notice, despite the fact I was already working on a sermon, I had put in a couple hours worth of work into that sermon. The Lord gave me a couple weeks head notice that this is what he wanted me to preach. So this will be about the most oddly structured sermon I've ever preached. It will be about one part, theological principles, a topical sermon, which I don't usually preach. Normally I like expository or theologically themed sermons. You'll notice Pastor Van Gelder in the vast majority of Sunday mornings, he'll preach expository sermons. And that really should be the normal pattern, I think, for a pastor. And that is usually my normal pattern. But this is kind of going against my normal pattern. It's topical, and then it will be sort of testimonial, and then it will be sort of brotherly advice as your big brother in Christ. We will talk about vocation. We will start out by talking about theological principles from Proverbs and some other passages about God's personal will. Then we will talk about vocation, seeking God's will for your vocation. And then if we have time, we will actually get into courtship. However, normally an eight-page manuscript sermon will last me about 35 minutes, maybe a little bit more. This is over 10 pages. So if anything gets cut, sadly, it will be the courtship part, despite the fact that I'm obviously such an expert on the topic. (laughs) Because I am engaged to Miss Richelle, so something, at least something went right then. <laughs> Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes, fear the Lord, and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel, and morrow to thy bones. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the ways in which you have directed me personally. Despite my many flaws, despite my many inconsistencies, despite my many stumblings, you have time and time again indicated that you love me personally, that you have a plan, and that you can work with me and direct me. Thank you for the wise people in my life. Thank you for my parents. Thank you for Pastor Van Gelderen. Thank you for just the people you have surrounded me with. Thank you for good friends. Thank you, Lord, that I know I can relate to you as a father and as a unique and individual son, not like anybody else, for better or for worse, not like anybody else. Thank you for that. Please guide us in this study, and in Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we jump into the key text, I want to emphasize, in light of all those quotes that I was, that I was giving you, I want to emphasize one key point. God does indeed have a personal will for you. I want to affirm that. We recently read uh, William Blackaby's book, Experiencing God, which really dovetailed very strongly with what we here at BCM believed. He also indicated God does have a personal will. God does personally direct. And there are a couple reasons that we can hold to this position. Number one, the spirit clearly guides his children. And we're gonna be turning rapidly back and forth between a couple key texts. The spirit does guide his children children, all of Romans 8 revolves around the relationship of the Christian to God the Father, and the Holy Spirit plays an immensely significant role here. Verse 16, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Techna, not just sons of God, but children, men and women. And then verse 26, likewise the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we... Do not know, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. That is in reference to each one of us individually. The Spirit indwells each one of us individually, and he helps each one of us individually. Acts 16.7 is one of many examples where the Holy Spirit is specifically guiding specific members of the New Testament church. After they were come to Boisea, they assayed, not just Paul, they assayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. We have the same Holy Spirit indwelling us that the Apostle Paul had. It is absurd to somehow think that the Holy Spirit becomes mute and silent after the book of Acts. In fact, Wayne Grudem, one author who is really on the right track, I think, and has written an excellent book in this regard, in his book... What the Bible says about how to know God's will, he specifically responds to Friesen that we mentioned early on, and this is what he writes. From beginning to end, the Bible tells us of a God who relates individually and personally to his people. And now Friesen tells us, contrary to the experiences of God's people throughout all the Bible, that God no longer communicates personally and individually with any of his people, except through the written words in the canon of Scripture. This is quite strange. In light of the fact that the new covenant in which we live now live is to be seen to be better in every way. But how can it be better if we have lost the elements of personal relationship with God and personal communication from him that characterize all periods of history that the Bible talks about? Can a God who loves his people never communicate with them personally, uh, directly and personally? I believe he's hit the nail on the head here. How can we say that this new era of the churches is so much more awesome than the old era if we lose that personal connection with God? We don't need visions, we don't need dreams, we don't need voices from heaven, but if we don't have some kind of personal communication, I don't think that's much better. (laughs) Thirdly, the fatherhood of God, a third point here in defense of the idea that we do have some personal leading, the fatherhood of God implies this. A good earthly father will give his children unique individual guidance and advice. He does not force them to do something. Your dad did not force you, well, they may have forced you to come to BCM, and that's fine, but they're not going to force you into a particular vocation. They did not force you to live this way or or live that way. A father can only do so much, but he does guide and direct each of you individually. A father that assumes that, you know, all four of his kids will be exactly the same way, well, that's problematic, obviously. Well, how much more so your heavenly father, does your heavenly father work with you individually and guide you individually? Now, having established that though, I want to deal with some of the frustrations that can come when we try to find God's will and just are not experiencing it in the same way that others with the victory that others have and so forth. Real quickly, John 21, 18 through 22, and then we'll be returning to, and then actually we'll be turning to Proverbs again, but John 21, 18 through 22, a very interesting statement. I don't want to rip this out of context. John 21 has a lot of theological depth here, and I don't want to overly focus on this and miss the overall point, but John 21 does have an interesting statement that Jesus gives that I think we can take and run with it. You know the story. He tells Peter, follow me, he implies very strongly that Peter is going to die. Verse 20 Then Peter, turning about, seeing the disciple, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, who is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? And notice Jesus' response, which I think we should take to heart. Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. In other words, mind your own business. It is possible, principle number two here, it is very much possible that other people's experiences, including those close to you, may in fact be irrelevant as to what God has planned for you. Now, there are certain elements that we can embrace when somebody gives up and gives a testimony about acting in faith and prayer and God led them to this person or God provided them that way. Yes, we can embrace the general fact that God hears our prayers, but we should not necessarily expect God to pay our school bill in exactly the same way they paid their school bill. We should not necessarily expect that we will get to witness to somebody in exactly the same way that they got to witness to somebody. We should not necessarily expect that our devotional time, our hour with God, ends up having the exact same result as it had with them. We we have those testimonies to encourage each other and make it clear that God is indeed moving, but one size does not necessarily fit all. Third, finding God's will involves making a conscious decision and practice to reverently include God in your plans. This has to be foundational. Back to Proverbs, this time 117. Proverbs 117. Not 117, 17, one 7 excuse me, big difference. <laughs> Unless I want to go all metaphorical with the net and the bird and all, so forth. <laughs> Proverbs 117, you probably know this by heart. <laughs> The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. With that in mind, turn to James, James chapter 4. There is a principle that both of these are affirming here. Yeah, you just got to Proverbs. Now turn to James. Be quicker. (laughs) James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Go to now, i.e. shame on you, ye that say today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings, all such rejoicings as evil. There to him that, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is a sin. Now, with Proverbs 1.7, Derek Kidner writes that this is the motto of, wisdom writings in, of the wisdom writings in general, the fear of the Lord is the beginning. James also affirms this, the fear of the Lord, the affirmation that he is in charge. Now, James does not say, and I think here's sometimes where we might go astray, James does not say, don't you dare go anywhere until we are totally, perfectly, 100% certain that something is God's will. He doesn't necessarily say that. I think maybe sometimes we confuse Solid, certainly, with 100% perfection. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But James does say, don't you dare do anything or go anywhere until you have factored God into the equation, if the Lord wills. Your life is a vapor. God could kill you anytime. It is superfluous to worry about finding out God's will for your life if you do not fear God. Conversely, if you do fear God, if that is a foundational principle of your life, if you do fear God, then you are on the right track and everything else to a certain degree becomes secondary. The fear of the Lord sets you on the right track, even if you may get mixed up a little bit sometimes in the details. Douglas Moon, his pillar commentary on James, writes, what James rebukes here, as verse 16 will make clear, is any kind of planning for the future that stems from human arrogance and our ability to determine the course of future events. So let me stress once again, if you are actually seeking God's will for your life, recognizing him as sovereign, fearing him, then you are already on the right track. So chill out. It's going to be okay, in other words. Don't get all stressed. You're fearing God. God recognizes that. You will not miss God's will if you are seeking for it in faith and fear. So chill out. (laughs) Knowing that God has sole authority in your life, that is the key. God has promised, Hebrews 11, God has promised that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. It may take a while. It may take time, but it will happen. Guidance will come. A good father does not toy with his child. In other words, God the Father is not up there saying, ha ha, Bubba Joe thinks he can find God's will. Let me give him a little bit of hope. Ooh, he thinks he's finding it. Ha ha, that door closed. Okay, let me give him a little bit of hope over here. Ha ha, that door closed. Loser, can't find my will. Here it is. Ah, That's not God. (laughs) He's a loving father. Good fathers don't do that, except maybe sometimes around Christmas time, you know, in anticipation (laughs) of a great gift. (laughs) Fourth, finding God's will involves relationship with God. And this is something that I believe guys like Friesen and many other evangelicals miss the point. Finding God's will is an outworking of a personal relationship. That personal relationship is real, hence the idea of of experiencing God's direction is also real. Now back to Proverbs, our key text, Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 8. Let's unpack this a little bit. It starts out with positive commands, trust, don't, uh, trust, and then a negative command, lean not on thine own understanding. That's the opposite of trusting, obviously. Acknowledge, don't be wise, but fear. But the three positive commands are trust, acknowledge, and fear. If you are obeying these in your life, even imperfectly, you are on the right path to finding God's will for your life. Notice the promise in verse 6, acknowledge God, which is what James was talking about. What will he do? Direct thy paths. And ways and paths, both of these are in the plural in Hebrew and in the English translation. This is not the generic way of wisdom that Proverbs often talks about and that many evangelicals are saying we should focus on. This is not the generic path of wisdom. That's all good and well. These are paths and ways, plural. When you commit your ways, all your decisions, all your choices to God, he will direct your paths, plural, there are multiple decision points then that this is talking about. Now, let's not get absurd here. Does God care if you, if you eat chocolate chip ice cream or if you eat vanilla ice cream? Well, in all fairness, maybe God wants me to go on a diet. But we don't want to paralyze ourselves with the minute decisions. That's where just having an understanding of God's word will guide you in the smaller matters. We are not supposed to get paralyzed with indecision on such matters. Sometimes you just need to act. But God does reserve the right to get involved in mundane decisions. I seem to recall an illustration, I forget who, who was giving that illustration, but of a pastor who normally goes out in casual clothes to run errands and God just impressed upon his heart that he needed to wear a suit and he obeyed what was clearly God's leading there and he went out and wore a suit and he ended up officiating at a funeral at the last minute. So God does reserve the right, but I don't want you to be paralyzed every time you go out to the store, should I wear a full suit or not? That's not the point. In such mundane decisions, yes, God can direct in a specific way, but he will make it very obvious. (laughs) The more obvious it is, the more mundane it is in a sense, the more obvious God will make it sometimes so that there will be absolutely no doubt and it's simply a matter of obeying or not. As Dr. Jim likes to say sometimes, there is no darkness in the decision-making of God. There will be no legitimate uncertainty if you are, in fact, open to obeying God. Back to the passage, look at that word acknowledge. In all thy ways acknowledge him. Derek Kidner writes, acknowledge is quite simply know, yada, in Hebrew, which contains not only the idea of acknowledging, but the much richer content of being aware of and having fellowship with. In other words, the key to having God reveal his direction in your life is to have a relationship with him. The deeper your relationship, the more clear things become. The more intimate your relationship, the more God has something to work with. And many evangelicals miss the point here. God does direct specifically, not just generically, because he has a specific relationship with you that is different from his relationship with the other people in your dorm. Regarding verse 7 then, the other principle here, be not wise in thy own eyes, Tremper Longman writes, if somebody thinks he is wise, then he will try to do things with his own resources which will not be sufficient. So the second takeaway here is, once again, the need to acknowledge my own lack of wisdom. When I approach God with that attitude, God will honor it. In other words, acknowledge I am not in charge of my own life, fear God, seek a relationship with him, and then anticipate that God will help you on the path. Fifthly, finding God's will does involve godly counsel from others. And that's part of being humble and acknowledging that we cannot rely on our own resources, our own intelligence. Proverbs 12, 15, for example, says, "...the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkeneth unto counsel is wise." In other words, if you self-determine, if you lay out in front of you, this is my career path, even if it's a good career path. This is my career path. I'm going to graduate from college, go to seminary, if you at least have some intel, <clears throat> some wisdom. Excuse me. Sorry. No, that's not the case. One size does not fit all. Not everybody's called the seminary. That's the whole point of this sermon. So... <laughs> You lay out your path in front of you, I'll go to four years in college, I'll participate in this and this and this and that, then I'll, then I'll go to seminary, then I'll have a pastorate, and I'll marry somebody who with these qualities, etc., etc., etc. If you lay out your own path in front of you without consulting God and without consulting others, you are a fool, according to the Bible. Now, interestingly, sometimes we can start on our own trajectory with godly counsel, but God can change it. Tremper Longman gives an excellent illustration. He ties this into the story of David and the temple. David had a right heart. He wanted to build a temple. He did not realize that just being a man of war and shedding blood disqualified himself, even though he was fighting God's wards, generally speaking. He didn't realize that disqualified himself. He had the right heart. Nathan had the right heart. Nathan said, yeah, go for it, man. The Lord's with you. Nathan didn't consult God on that. David, at least, was consulting, but Nathan didn't consult God. Then God comes out and says to Nathan, whoop, wait a minute, wait a minute, nope. And then Nathan goes to David with the bad news. Sorry, this is not God's will that you build a temple. But then what happens as a result? The trajectory changes, but David then embraces the fact that he's not supposed to build the temple. So what does he do instead? He devotes his remaining years to preparing for Solomon to build a temple. God redirected him, but then he is able to embrace God's will in a way that actually related to his original intention. God redirected him that way. Practically speaking, God does guide in the little things as well, but there will be various degrees of certainty and various degrees of influence from other sources such as counsel or preaching. Now, sixth, and this should be a dumb moment, if you will, but I do need to stress this, God's will will never involve going contrary to God's word. And here is where I think some, some of the evangelicals, such as Friesen and the uh, and young, this is a legitimate concern. That sometimes we get so caught up in emotional experience of finding God's will that we end up doing things that are actually contrary to God's clear written word. God's subjective will designed for you will never go contrary to his word. God is not schizophrenic. For example, we here at Baptist College of Ministry are absolutely united on the point, the fact, that based on the authority of Scripture, divorce is never God's will. Now, there may be difficulties to work through. There may be some extreme instances if the, woman's, if the woman is being battered where there may need to be temporary separation with the hope of reconciliation, with church discipline enacted on the husband and so forth. But even in those cases, we are united in saying, no, divorce is not the answer because divorce severs what God has put together. And we say that on the authority of Scripture. In other words, nobody can ever say, God told me to divorce this person. It just flat out does not compute. So there are certain things God will not lead you to do. God does not change his mind about what he wrote. God will never lead you to be a bartender, for example. As a corollary, of course, there are certain things. uh, Prayer, witnessing, some form of involvement in missions, holy living, being nice to people, not being a jerk. There are certain things that are essential for all Christians. So there is a baseline of God's will that does apply to everybody as revealed in Scripture. And it's another corollary, if you are under authority in a matter and the authority figure within the legitimate sphere of their authority tells you to do something that is not contradictory to God's word, then we conclude that this is, at that point, God's will. So some, some of you are here because your parents made you come. That is God's will for you to be here. I am confident that every single one of you is here and that is God's will for you to be here. Even if your parent made you come, you are still under their authority. It is a legitimate expression of their authority to have you come here. Hebrews 13, 17 talks about obeying authority figures. Now, obviously, the limitation is we ought to obey God rather than man. If Professor Paul tells his class, let's go and rob a bank so that we can help pay for the building, okay, well, number one, that's outside of my sphere of authority. Number two, even more importantly, God said thou shalt not steal. (laughs) So there are limitations, but the point being, God does not, if if that is a legitimate expression of that authority figure's fear of influence, God does not tell you to disobey that authority figure. And then finally, God is still able to guide you even when you mess up. Acts 21.4. Acts 21.4. And I speak from experience on this as well. If I had more time to share my authority, Acts 21 verse 4. This is a little bit controversial. This is one of those areas where there might be a little bit of disagreement amongst the faculty. But I can't get around the fact in verse 4, and finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said, the disciples said to Paul, notice that phrase, through the Spirit. This is not just people being recorded in their speech saying the Holy Spirit tells you not to do this. This is Luke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saying that these people said to Paul, through the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't lie. The Spirit isn't schizophrenic. They said to Paul, through the Spirit, that he should not go up to Jerusalem. And then look at verse 13, though. Then Paul says, What mean ye to weep, weep and break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul goes up to Jerusalem. As best as I can understand, just with taking chapter 21, verse 4 at face value, the Spirit did not want, to go, did not want to Paul to go up to Jerusalem. I see no way around that. And yet Paul went up to Jerusalem. And yet what happened? Paul ended up in Rome, which was the whole point after all. Now, the Holy Spirit worked with Paul even though he made a mistake. The Holy, Paul meant well, but he was not quite in tune to other people sharing with him what the Spirit wanted him to know. He was not quite in tune with that as he should have been. The result would have been perhaps a more efficient way to get to Rome if he had actually listened to the Spirit. But he didn't, but the Holy Spirit still worked with him. This should be a liberating thought. We can mess up and God still uses us. Now, At some point, if it's out-and-out rebellion, God may have to take the gloves off, right? Exhibit A is Jonah. Don't push God to that point. But we can mess up. Paul meant well. He just wasn't listening to people that he should have listened to. And God still used that and still brought him to Rome. We can mess up, and it's still okay. God, God can still use us. Now, as to how that all comes together, I'm running out of time, and I wanted to jump into brotherly advice about vocation. Let me just quote something by Charles Trumbull real quick that I think is very helpful. Some Christians almost never speak of an action or decision of theirs without prefacing it with the words, God told me. And quite often, time later reveals plainly that they had misunderstood his leading, something that's possible at any time for any believer, even while wholly yielded. Instead of saying, God told me to do this, isn't it better to say something like, I believe God would have me to do this? And that way we can humbly recognize the truth that we're capable of being mistaken. You will have various degrees of certainty. You know, I would even say preaching this sermon instead of the other sermon that I was working on, that's not 100% certainty. I would say that's like 90% certainty. There are very few things in life, the more clearly it is revealed in Scripture, I would say 100% certainty. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He saved me. My soul, my entire existence is staked on that fact. That's 100% certainty. But very few things would I put to that level, and that's okay. Because let's say hypothetically that I was wrong to preach this sermon and I'm standing before the judgment seat of Christ, God is not going to rebuke me for having pure motives in preaching this sermon. And God can still use this sermon, even if hypothetically, though unlikely, maybe I should have preached the other sermon. (laughs) So let that be a liberating thought. We're not looking for 100% certainty on many things. We don't need that. What we do need is pure motives in seeking God and allowing him to guide us. God doesn't toy with us. Once again, God doesn't toy with us. Now, with that in mind, let's have a quick, few quick thoughts about personal vocation. I'm sorry we really won't have any time to talk about courtship at all. <laughs> in fact, I'm going to have to skim through a lot of this. But the baseline is personal surrender to anything. You gotta have that taken care of. Otherwise, everything else is superfluous. Why should God bother leading you to his specific specific will for your life if you haven't made the surrender to anything yet? Take care of that. I hope that you've taken care of that. If you haven't, it doesn't necessarily have to be a formal come-down invitation, though though for some of you it may be. Uh, Maybe that's the better way, in fact, because it puts a stake in the ground. But the baseline is surrender to anything God wants you to do. Get that total surrender down, and then you give something God to work with. But secondly, the calling itself must be what God gives you, not somebody else. Let me share a little bit of personal testimony. One of the annoyances of my growing up as a missionary kid was so often people would ask, oh, when are you going to Japan? Or are you called to be a missionary too? And that kind of annoyed me because I never felt that calling. I never felt the desire and I never felt the calling. I love Japan, I prayed for Japanese people, But I never felt that leading, and it seemed to be the assumption that as is the parent, so is the child. I am so grateful, though, that my parents never put that pressure on me. In fact, we hear sometimes, and this is good, some parents, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, as they step out in faith and prayer, do dedicate their children to be a preacher, and that's okay, Faith-filled parents can do that as the Holy Spirit guides them, and in fact, that might be the impetus that is needed to direct the child towards the pastoral calling or whatever, or the evangelistic calling, the preacher calling. That can be the greatest gift that a parent can give a child in regards to vocational calling. However, with me, in all honesty, it was the opposite. The greatest gift my parents gave me was not to push me towards a particular vocation. It is If they had tried to do that, I doubt that I would be here today preaching in BCM Chapel. One size does not fit all. Make sure that the calling you are headed into is your calling. Now, once again, I believe every single one of you here is called to BCM. However, let me state that coming to BCM does not even necessarily mean that God intends you for full-time ministry. I feel the need to stress this point. I've had a few conversations this past semester, even in the past few weeks, that have helped me come to this sermon, in a sense, and, and preach on this point. It is possible for there to be such a thing as spiritual peer pressure that may in fact have a negative impact. Let me explain, simply being a man at BCM may cause people to assume that you are destined for full-time ministry. After all, all the cool kids go into the pastorate or evangelism or missions, right? And the hopeless nerds become professors, but that's another story. (laughs) How can you be right with God if you're not in full-time vocation? It's important to understand that the same God who calls people into full-time vocational ministry calls people into secular work, and there really is no such thing as secular because any job you become a part of becomes sacred to God because God has you there for a purpose. God will lead you to specific businesses. God will lead you to specific jobs, even if they are not full-time vocation, because God wants you there. So let me just make something clear If you are not called to be a missionary specifically to Japan, we don't want you in Japan. That's a hard thing to say, but it's true. Why not? Because you will quit after three years and leave a mess for other people to clean up. My parents have seen this. We have seen this. If you are not called to be a a pastor, we don't want you as a pastor. Because you will mess things up and become bitter and flame out. It's the specific call of God in your life that gives you the confidence to stay where God puts you. The reason my parents, and this is one, one way I'm so grateful to my parents, the reason my parents lasted 30 plus years in Japan, both husband and wife, because sometimes the wife can actually vamoose and head back to the States for the husband. So both my mom and dad, the reason they lasted 30 plus years is because they knew that God had called them. It wasn't all peaches and cream. (laughs) There are times when you grow very upset with the people you're ministering to. It wasn't all peaches and cream, but that is what sustained them, a specific calling. Now, the flip side, once again, is that some of you have not surrendered to that calling. In fact, I would say within Christianity, it's probably more the case that God wants people to be on the mission field that don't surrender and don't end up going, then the reverse side that they go when they're not supposed to. In fact, I remember an interview. There was an interview with, uh, oh, a famous, was it Lottie Moon? It might have been Lottie Moon, an interview she gave where she, as a single woman, said, I think God called somebody to be my husband in China and work with me, and he rejected the call. And that's about the saddest thing you could ever hear. But nonetheless, back to the original point, it is possible for us at BCM to develop this unhealthy mentality that somehow those not in full-time vocational are second-rate Christians. When we call this place Baptist College of Ministry, we do not mean Baptist College of Pastors, Evangelists, and Missions. We We mean Baptist College of all Christians in ministry. If you finish college and are walking with God and seeking God's will in prayer and actually coming to the conclusion that God has not called you into the pastorate and God opens the door for you to get involved in a business and you have a solid testimony and 10 years from now you are raising kids in a godly manner and supporting your pastor and giving sacrificially to your church and doing all that, we will not be embarrassed about you. In fact, we will be proud of you. We would rather have you representing Baptist College of Ministry than somebody that jumps into the pastorate without God's clear leading and flames out after five years and becomes bitter, no matter how successful he may have been in the first year. As a side note, ladies, don't marry a preacher just because all the cool girls are marrying preachers. Okay, Marry the person God has for you. And then finally, and I need to rush through here because you all have some very, 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 very important practices, uh, practice time. The method of calling must be what God gives you, not somebody else. I did not go down at a, at a sermon invitation to become a professor, <laughs> but I did have a calling. For me, it was more of a gradual process I enrolled in biblical studies because I did not yet feel that call to pastoral ministry. There was a pastoral studies major. I enrolled in biblical studies, and I, started, and I found that I actually liked Greek, and I actually liked writing papers. And about my junior year, I don't know that it was a particular day or a particular moment, but about my junior year, I got just strong impression looking at my professors, not having a call to be a preacher or a missionary. I looked at my professors, and I'm like, dude, I want to do that. That looks fun. That doesn't sound very spiritual, but it's how God worked with me. And I started praying about it. And God opened doors, and I went on, and I did really, really good in grad school. Much better in grad school than in college. Let that be an encouragement to those of you. (laughs) Because I was focusing on the topics I loved, and I went on to seminary, and God opened the door, and I was teaching Sunday school, and I liked teaching. And I remember one of my professors, Al Huss, one day in class saying, quoting Eric Little, or at least indirectly quoting Eric Little, saying, when I teach, I feel the pleasure of God upon me. And that resonated with me. It's like when I teach, something clicks. Now, the students may not always feel it, bless their hearts. <laughs> but when I teach, I feel the pleasure of God on me. Like, there's nothing greater. There's no greater experience in, in a way. But you've heard other people say that about leading souls to the Lord, or preaching, and especially evangelists, right? They're, they're all clued into, wow, this is what God wants me to do, and it's fun. But God works different ways. Real quickly, some key principles then. Surrender to whatever. Have a consistent habit of Bible reading and prayer. Listen to wise counsel. The younger you are especially, the more important this is. Chill out. Number four, chill out. Accept where you are. Accept that it's not about you. Don't obsess about the future. Take it one step at a time. And I'm positive, let me say this, I'm positive here the leadership would agree with me. You are not yet smart enough to know how best to develop your talents and abilities. That's why you're in college, so we can help you. Don't assume you have all your ducks in a row. And I I speak to a certain degree to myself here as well because I still have ways to grow in this. But on the flip side, remember, God doesn't steer a parked car. Although I disagree with the premise of Kevin DeYoung's book, Just Do Something, I don't disagree with the title. Sometimes you just need to do something and that's totally okay. If you've done your due diligence and you're diligently seeking God's will, try things and it's up to God to direct you. He doesn't want you to fail. It's in his best interest for you to experience his blessing in ministry. And once again, not everybody will be the same. Don't worry about how God leads others. Enjoy your relationship with him as a unique individual. When I, and, and just understand, God will work differently with you. And relax, it'll be Okay. It'll be okay. All right, I'm really out of time. So the courtship part will have to wait for a different time. (laughs) But I hope I've given you some food for thought. This isn't, I don't know that this is necessarily the sort of sermon that we give a come down invitation to, but I I will give that opportunity. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to bow in prayer. And if there's anybody that hasn't made that baseline commitment, because I do need, this is the sort of thing that just can't be generic. You do need to actually tell God, I'm surrendered to anything and mean it. Make that, if you haven't yet made that baseline commitment, maybe this would be a good opportunity for you to come down and and kneel in prayer. For the rest of you, exalt in the fact and thank God for the fact and embrace the fact that he is your loving father that has a plan for you. And thank him for that and embrace the fact and then chill out and don't worry about it and don't stress out.